Thank you, Tanya, for the, the music. Um, that first song, uh, <laughs> Miracles, uh, since Tanya didn't mention it, I guess I have to. Uh, I wrote the words to that song. Um, Tanya very graciously offered to sing a, offer a song that uh, I had co-written and uh, when she knew that I was going to be speaking today. And I had the song, um, it's a new song, uh, and it fit, I mean, it, it's, it speaks to the message. And so it's a bit of a prelude to uh, what the message is all about, which is miracles. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for your presence among us. Lord, uh, nobody wants to hear from me, but we all want to hear from you. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, just speak to our hearts. Uh, tell us those things that we need to hear individually. Um, and may we have the boldness to respond uh, to whatever you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, whoops, <laughs> hello. Uh, to quote myself, that song begins, Every day is a miracle from the God who gives us breath. What I meant by that is that life itself, the fact that we're alive and breathing and our hearts are pumping, is a miracle. It's not because of anything that we did that we exist or that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created us and gave us the breath of life. And he keeps us alive with every involuntary breath and heartbeat for as long and only as long as he desires. I say that because it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that miracles are a part of our daily lives. Those occurrences that just happen and cannot be explained. One morning some years ago, I had gone for a walk. I was short on money at the time. It's like every time, all the time. And I was feeling a bit anxious. I happened to notice an envelope on the ground. It had been opened, and I saw what looked like paper money sticking out. I picked it up and saw $40 in cash inside. Believe me, my first thought was to try to figure out who had lost it. But there was no return address on the envelope, and the only writing on it was in Chinese. So I kept the cash. <laughs> had, no, had no way to figure out who had lost it. I mean, the money was soon spent, but it felt like I had discovered a gold mine. And I very clearly remember floating through the day and constantly thanking God for his goodness to me. And that speaks to the true purpose of miracles. It's not to amaze us or to give us chills, though they certainly can do that, but to deepen our understanding and appreciation of who God is and who Jesus is. So this morning I'd like us to look at uh, a, a very familiar passage, a very familiar miracle, which, is, which we all know, I think, in our Bibles as uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that's not the correct that's not the proper title, but I'll get to that. This, is a, this, this uh, account is in all four Gospels, which indicates how important this is. Uh, we're going to look at um, 
uh, Mark's gospel. This, uh, if you have uh, one of the blue Bibles nearby, this is Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, and this, be, this is on page 996. So Mark 6, beginning in verse 30, going to, the, to, Mar, uh, to uh, verse 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. I'll explain what, that, what they had done in a minute. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy, some, buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. I read recently that Jesus' miracles were parables in action. And that makes a lot of sense. Jesus used parables to illustrate in ways people could easily understand what the kingdom of God was all about. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God, he would ask. It is like a mustard seed, a lost coin, a pearl of great value, the flowers in the field, the sower and the seed, and so on. Miracles have an added dynamic visual di dimension that go beyond the spoken word in using our imaginations. Miracles reveal the power of God in all kinds of real-life situations, but still with the same purpose as parables of opening our minds to what it's really like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, what it's really like when we surrender to the lordship of Christ and allow him to reign and rule in our hearts. This particular miracle actually comprises countless miracles. The multiplication of just a few loaves of bread and a couple of small fish into untold quantities, plus, and this is not in Mark's gospel, but it's in the other um, gospels, the physical healing of probably thousands of broken bodies, minds, and souls. So what I'd like us to do is to dive beneath the surface of this miracle, so to speak, 
and see what the story can tell us about the kingdom of God and Jesus our King. The first thing we need to look at is that the kingdom of God has a heart of compassion. It's important to know a bit about what led up to this miraculous event. First, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, Jesus had sent out the 12 in his power to preach the good news and heal the sick. They came back rejoicing at all the miracles they had witnessed and the lives they had touched. But second, it was around the same time that Herod Antipas, the ruler of the Galilee, had executed John the Baptist, who was a prisoner. And if you know the story, it was an absolutely gruesome execution. So while Jesus and the disciples are elated at the outcome of their mission trip, they are also the grieving, grieving the death of John. And we know from John's gospel that at least three of the disciples, three of the twelve, Peter, Andrew, and Philip had been John's disciples before Jesus, before they went over to Jesus. So Jesus says they need some R&R to get away from the huge crowds that constantly pursue them. They go by boat to an isolated place not far away, only to find that the crowd had gotten there ahead of them. Mark says this crowd numbered 5,000 men. But as Matthew's gospel tells us, that this did not include women and children. One estimate I've seen puts the actual crowd size in the area of 15 to 20,000 people. In other words, up to four times as large. And many of these people, too, would have been sick with a broad spectrum of physical, emotional, and or mental illnesses. Some were so infirm that they needed to be carried there. People of all ages desperately wanted Jesus to heal them. And as soon as Jesus sees them, he immediately gives them, and not his disciples, his full attention, his full and undivided attention. Verse 34 says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, what is compassion? The late Catholic theologian and author Ari Nguyen says it comes from two Latin words, com, which means with. Think of words like company, uh, commiserate, communicate, with, and passio, uh, which means to suffer. Think of the passion of the Christ. That really means the suffering of the Christ. And so Nguyen says to suffer with is compassion. And these are his words. There is no human suffering in you or anyone else in the world that has not been suffered by God. Incredible. Consolation begins with this knowing God is suffering all human suffering. He felt the agony of the people. Now I will freely admit that this is a divine mystery. I don't pretend to understand it fully. But it tells me that what happened here is that when Jesus sees this huge crowd of people all pushing and shoving and crying out for him, he immediately feels in his innermost being, Nguyen says Jesus 
felt it viscerally, literally in his guts. All the pain and suffering and sickness of each individual person in that crowd of thousands and with a depth of intimacy that we cannot imagine. I can't imagine that. None of us could, really. So Jesus reveals his heart of compassion this, uh, when he arrives at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had died four days earlier. This helps us understand, I think, what is going on here. Jesus encounters a group of mourners, including Lazarus' sister Mary. And John eleven thirty three to verses thirty three to thirty five says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, I'd never understood why Jesus wept. He knew what he was going to do, that in just a few minutes, Lazarus would be alive again. But now I realize Jesus wasn't weeping for Lazarus as he was weeping with those who were grief-stricken over his death. Their loss became his loss. Their suffering became his suffering. This awareness of kingdom compassion has huge implications for how we can pray for one another and for ourselves. You can be hurting or struggling in some way. We can sympathize because maybe we've gone through a similar situation, but we cannot know the totality of your suffering because what you're going through is unique to you. And thanks to Jesus, we don't have to know everything. We don't have to know all the details before we can pray because he does. He is already in the depths of your suffering, your struggle. As Nguyen says, consolation begins with this knowing and that knowing frees us to go straight to praying for healing, relief, reconciliation, a miracle, whatever. We don't even have to pray, Lord be with so-and-so this particular person, because he's already there. It's so liberating. We don't have to know all the details. (laughs) Jesus knows already. We don't have to say, you know, to pray, Lord, be with this person who is suffering, because Jesus is already there. It's a beautiful picture. And this awareness consoles us even when we don't know how to pray. And all we can do is groan. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with words we cannot express. Think of anyone you know who is suffering in some way right now. Maybe that person is you. And know that they and you are never alone because Jesus suffers with us. Jesus suffers with us. The second thing, second revelation, I think, in this, out of this miracle is that the kingdom of God is programmed to serve. 
This event marked a turning point for Jesus and his disciples. It was the high watermark of Jesus' public ministry and at the same time the beginning of the disciples' education in what it really meant to follow him. Up to now, their role had been mostly passive, receiving his teachings and probably understanding not much, watching him perform miracles and marveling at his power and going where Jesus wanted to go. They were used to being under the authority of others, such as the Romans, and saw doing as they were told, in terms of the Romans, as a matter of survival. But it's part of their mindset, just to follow and obey. So I think they were content and maybe even took selfish pride in following Jesus, despite giving up their livelihoods and being away from their homes and families and having to endure the disdain of the religious leaders and the demands of the crowds. They knew there was something special about Jesus that kept them with him. But now that's about to change. So let's look further in the passage. I'll reread it uh, just to keep our memories fresh. Beginning in verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Then he said to them, that that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five. And oh, by the way, two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Jesus had never spoken to his disciples like this. But he knew that he was only about a year away from going to the cross, which meant that he had to bring these men and women to a place where they could continue his ministry after he had returned to the Father. And from then on, they were his primary focus and not the crowds. This extraordinary dialogue started reasonably enough It's getting really late. It's getting dark. People are getting hungry. The 12 tell Jesus he should dismiss the crowd so they can go find something to eat somehow. No, says Jesus, and I think this is how he says it, you give them something to eat. You disciples, you give them something to eat. At this, the 12 seem to almost argue with Jesus. We can't afford to do that. But Jesus holds his ground and tells them to gather up all the bread they can from the disciples themselves. Now, I should explain that I think when we're talking about the disciples, this is a large, large crowd, much larger than just 12 men, but possibly, probably their wives, their children, friends, fellow followers. And he says to them, and I think he's in the same spirit, go and see. In other words, it's up to you. You go. 
and see what would you have to offer to these people, to this crowd. And so they come, up, come back with only five loaves and two small fish. It's hardly enough to feed one person, let alone several thousand. But for Jesus, it was enough. He takes the food and gives thanks to God. Raises his hands and gives thanks to God. It was in this moment of blessing that the miracle of multiplication occurred. Then Jesus broke the loaves and divided the fish and to his disciples' amazement gave it to them to distribute. Now the logistics of this are beyond comprehension, certainly my comprehension. It must have taken all the disciples present, men, women, and likely even their older children, to distribute so much food to so many people. And the only way that I can conceive of this, and it's not really, again, this goes beyond what we can understand. Even then, it seems to me that the food must have kept multiplying, multiplying, multiplying in the disciples' hands until everyone had been fed. I think that what this episode tells us is that if we want to follow Jesus to come under his lordship, he's going to insist insist on our active involvement in his ministry. I love how Peter sums up in Acts 10.38 what Jesus did. He went around doing good. That's it. He went around doing good. That needs to be our activity as well, seeking the best for others at every opportunity, finding ways to put our gifts and talents to good use for the glory of God. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. Of course, Jesus didn't need the disciples to feed these people. At his command, manna would have fallen like rain on the crowd. But Jesus wants to take us deeper. He wants to grow us into his likeness. If we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we must desire to grow increasingly into his likeness, both being and doing, as Trevor has been teaching us in 1 Timothy. That means this is not optional. If you think church is all about coming here on a Sunday morning to sing songs and listen to a sermon, well, then I'm sorry to say you're wrong. Trevor says that the real heart of City View is not Sunday worship, what we're doing now, but open table on Thursdays because it gives us a weekly opportunity to show the love of Jesus to our community. The best expression I've heard, description I should say, I've heard for open table is doing church over a meal. And now don't get me wrong, it's very important very important that we gather on Sunday in our life groups for worship and prayer and teaching and fellowship. But our real mission as a church is to serve our neighbors and our community, shining the light of Christ in the darkness. We do a lot out, out there, out there in the community, out there in the, in the world, compared to our size as a church. And I really think that's one of our great strengths. But that shouldn't stop us from doing more and doing better. If that's the Lord, 
if that's what the Lord wants from us. Perhaps one challenge we can set ourselves for 2020 would be to discern where he wants to take us. Maybe you sense it's time to take on some additional responsibility or lay down one role and pick up another or just get involved for the first time. Whatever it is, may you respond joyfully in knowing that Jesus is calling us, us of all people, to serve him. And finally, the kingdom of God is a storehouse of extravagance. The miraculous did not end once all the people had been given something to eat. Verse 42 tells us they all ate and were satisfied. They weren't just given a bit of bread and fish to keep them going until they could stop at a restaurant or a grocery store on the way home. All four Gospels say the same thing. And also that afterwards, on Jesus' instructions, the disciples still picked up 12 basketfuls of uneaten pieces of bread and fish. For all the food that had been eaten, there was still lots of food left over. And this reminds me of something that happened at Open Table a few years ago. There's no telling how many will show up one week to the next. So Lalfi and Arlene prepare meals for about 60 people. Sometimes that advanced planning gets thrown off when people or even a small crowd walk in after they've already started serving the food. And when that happens, there's usually still enough food for everyone. But this one time, and I spoke to Lalpi this week to refresh my memory on this, but this one time, they ran out of food with about a dozen people left unserved. Thank goodness I wasn't in charge because I would have probably just told them, sorry, there's nothing left, please come again. <laughs> Me of little faith, but not Lalpi. I clearly remember watching him going through the kitchen cupboards looking for something he could prepare quickly. And I don't know how, but he did. Everyone got a hot meal, and I don't think anyone realized what had just happened. And so just like the crowd in Mark's gospel, they all ate and were satisfied. When I asked Alfie about this incident, he emailed back, keep calm, pray, and think on your feet. Good advice. I like that. Because it speaks to trusting in God to give us what we need and infinitely more. If we will be faithful to carry out what he calls us to do. It was not on the scale of feeding upwards of 20,000 people. But to me, that was still a miracle. And extravagance is central to God's nature. And not just when it comes to food. He wants to bless us richly, far beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Maybe you were especially generous in your gift giving this Christmas. That's good, I suppose. But you could bankrupt yourself at Christmas and never come anywhere near God's incredible extravagance all year round. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, 9 to 11, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or for he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him?
That's our extravagant God. And in Psalm 23, verse 5, you know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David exclaims, my cup overflows. He's saying that God has poured so much of his love and mercy and grace and goodness and blessing upon blessing into my life, my cup, that it can't contain it all. It overflows. And because of God's extravagant provision, David is immediately able to declare with absolute confidence, you know these words, this verse, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's extravagance in every good thing is his invitation to us to live the abundant life. As Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief, that is the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But of course, there was no more extravagant act on God's part than the gift of Jesus himself who came and took our rightful place on the cross. And again, you know these verses, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. And think of it in terms of extravagance, God's extravagance. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So his loss became our gain. And so, my friends, this is our God. This is our God who loves us infinitely more than our brains are capable of fathoming. This is our God whose compassion for us is so intense that he is suffering with us. This is our God who tells us that our sinful self is gone and our new transformed lives in Christ has come. This is our extravagant God who delights in giving all his children good things and then even more and more good things. This is our God who even now is doing the miraculous for those who sincerely put their trust in him. And so may we step into 2020 with our hearts and eyes and ears wide open to everything that our God has in store for us in the days to come, far more than we can ever ask for or imagine. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you. You do so much for us and in us and through us. Ah. We have life, we have breath, we have beating hearts because of you. And you bless us miraculously every day. Maybe we don't even realize it, but you do. You are intimately involved in our lives. 
You know everything about us. You know us far better than we know ourselves. And that's not just to accumulate knowledge about us, but so that you can respond to our needs. You can respond in our weaknesses. You can respond in our suffering and in our struggles. And you will. If we have faith, Lord, you will. Lord, may we have the faith to and the trust in you. Just to rest in you. And know that you are working for us and for those we love. You are seeking the best for your children. And Lord, may we just take this to heart as we go into a new year, knowing that uh, you're working miracles in us and around us all the time. And we thank you. We thank you for your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.